Good morning. It's good to see you guys. A couple housekeeping things before we uh, dig into the text. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and meet me in uh, the book of Colossians, Paul's letters to the Colossians, which is also uh, to us. But a couple housekeeping. Uh, Next week, April 18th, we're having like a family um, meeting for those of us who've gone through uh, the membership process, but then also for those who have been connecting with us but haven't quite been able to make the the leap for whatever reason, uh, man, we want to just extend that time to you. We're just, you know, some what's going on in the life of our church that we may not be aware of, some key updates. Um, And then, man, what are we looking forward to? Yeah, like what is God doing and how can we join him in that work? And so that will be next week. It'll be in the newsletter and other platforms, but just please just want to go ahead and say, make a note um, of it now. It's the timer starting. Thank you guys for all the prayers and support. Just a constant reminder that the church isn't like a family. It is a family. I'm going to say that in a little bit. But man, there's something unique and powerful about being able to gather together. You know, we're gathering together online, which is so amazing. We're gathering together in person, and I just, like, man, this is, this is refreshing for my soul. So thank you. Thank you for singing, just to hear your voice. Oh, man, it's good. We are beginning a journey today that will span um, probably like 36 weeks or so. Yeah, it's going to take us to about October, November. Some of you are like, oh, my God, let me know when we start talking about other stuff, right? Um, (laughs) But we're journeying through the book of Colossians. And let me tell you why, if I may. Let me just start off by why before we get to the text. Colossians is condensed greatness. You have some 2,000 words, four chapters with tremendous claims about God himself, about us, about the world around us, they're massive, they're significant. And it creates this type of condensed greatness and an introduction, reintroduction for some of us into what is Christ and Christianity all about? Almost like a primer. So there's a, there's a few reasons why I think it's very appropriate and necessary for us to walk through Colossians in this moment, and honestly, some hopes that will take place for us over the course of this journey. The first is, because Colossians is condensed greatness, it speaks to every single one of us directly. I've been accused of being a dreamer. You're a sensitive soul and you're a dreamer. Fair game. that's a fair accusation. I cry randomly. I'm the dude that has random like tissue paper. I'm like, why are my eyes sweating? It happens. Okay. However, that accusation for me is really a statement of us all. All of humanity are dreamers. If we're honest, God built us that way. Uh, there's a there's a musical, it's top five musicals for me of all time. Uh, really, number three, uh, Greatest Showman and uh, you know Hamilton 
almost moved it out the way, and I'm waiting for In the Heights to see if it will kind of creep up in there. Nevertheless, uh, Les Mis is one of my favorite musicals of all time. If you've heard the story, you've seen the musical, it's powerful. And there's a character in there, Fantine. She was recently played by Anne Hathaway. It's the reason why Anne Hathaway got an Oscar, deservedly so. Uh, and there's that one song that wants, like, I Dream the Dream. And she talks about how, like, man, it's super poetic. She talks about, like, how she had these, like, glorious dreams for life, but the tigers come at night. And they tear our dreams apart, and they turn our dreams to shame. And that, to me, is what happens to us all. Built into every single one of us is dreaming because we long for greatness, and then life happens. We stop dreaming. We stop longing. We redefine what greatness is. And what Colossians does is because it's condensed greatness, it confronts all of us and says, hey, here's this great and glorious picture of who God is. There's this great and glorious picture of who you are and who you can be. There's this great and glorious picture of the world around us. Have at it. That's Colossians. And I want that for us. But because it is a primer of sorts of Christ and Christianity containing significant claims, it creates a crossroads. Now, virtually here in person, for the life of our church, we consistently have non-Christians engage with us. Keep coming. This is home, guys. We're family. Keep coming, all right? But the hope is specifically, especially through the book of Colossians, that this will be a crossroads where the, the claims of Christ and Christianity will confront us in a way where we could say yes or no. We could say, man, you know, I actually want this. Well, you know what? I don't want this because that isn't helpful for me. Now, I don't want that for us, but I do want that crossroads moment through our journey. And if we're honest, objectively, over the last four to six years, there has been an assault on Christianity in the public square. And the public witness of Christianity is not good in America. That's not subjective. That's not whatever. That's objective observation. It's the stuff God says in the Old Testament. My name is a stink among the nations because of my people. And what's happened in light of this assault on the public witness of Christ and Christianity is that many of us are in this weird space of reimagination, which is actually redefinition. And we're deconstructing Christ and Christianity in ways that actually suit us, divorcing God's voice from the story. And there's a crossroads of sorts where some of us are like, I'm just ready to be out. Like, I'm, honestly, I'm kind of done with this Christian thing. And I want to create a new version of it for myself. And what I want to just say to us is please don't do that. And hopefully through our journey through Colossians, this crossroads will be one where we say, you know what? God speaking for himself is causing me to rethink things, to reimagine well and lock in differently. For all of us, what Colossians does is it reinforces this truth that the scriptures are meant to be studied critically and devotionally, both and not either or. In fact, that's the point of today. The point of today is to just reinforce this idea, to just drive it into our souls and apply it in multiple ways. The idea is this. The scriptures will never come alive for us 
with cursory interaction from us. Say that again. The scriptures will never come alive for us with cursory interaction from us. And so as we walk through this glorious 2,000-word letter of condensed greatness, it's so that the scriptures will come alive because we're interacting with them well. And there's going to be moments where we pause and we only look at a few verses. There's going to be moments where we take chunks and we take like just major ideas, but that's the journey in front of us. Today is one of those moments where we pause. In fact, that was a shift. I thought we were going to talk about the will of God, but it was like Wednesday or Thursday. I was like, oh, Lord, you're leading us in a different direction based on just the weight of the text. And so the will of God is next week. Come back and bring people as we try to deal with such a weighty a topic. But for today, we're really just going to look at some particulars that build out that significant claim about cursory interaction and the scriptures coming alive. Particulars that are worth pausing for that we see in the text. And then we'll close with some considerations, some applications that I think would be helpful. Cool beans? Particulars worth pausing for, uh, considerations. And if I preach for an hour, it's because I haven't preached in four weeks. I'm joking. I saw your eyes. She's like, oh, Lord. <laughs> I'm just joking. It's not going to be a, in Jesus' name. Preach for an hour. I'm not going to do that. I thought about it, though, but then I realized I'd get fired. All right. I would, um, by you guys and by our pastors. So uh, let me read a verse. <laughs> Praise God. Let me read, and then we'll get to work. Uh, chapter 1, uh, verses 1 and 2 reads like this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, like you know, all throughout the scriptures, you can underline things, start them, mark them. I say that regularly. There's so much that you can underline here. For me, I'm underlining by the will of God. And the reason being is because it is such a massive statement. It is an audacious statement, especially even here. By the will of God, God's desires and plans for all of life that he enacts as he pleases the will of God that's coming. But the audacity of Paul to include that statement, he does it in most of his letters, but to include that statement here, by the will of God, while I'm in chains. The will of God is fascinating and is worth discovery, discerning, and doing well. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints, and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Absolutely loaded. So I went to seminary. You don't have to go to seminary to be a pastor. You don't need to go to seminary to be a Christian. Um, but it's school where you just spend some potential time devoted to working through some particular ideas regarding Christianity, Christ, life, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Anyway, had a Bible prof, hermeneutics, which is just a fancy way of saying the art and science of understanding the Bible, interpreting the Bible. And we use a lot of fancy words so that we could sound smart and people will listen to us. But that's what it was. So I had a Bible class, Hermeneutics 101, Bible prof, John Hanna, monster. First assignment, he was like, man, I want, we're going to look at one verse, it's like John 1-1, one, one, and I want you to make 50 observations to that one verse. I was like, oh, cool, 50, 50, 5 or 50? 
50. All right, cool. Did 50 observations. Came back, turned to Simon in, whole class. He's like, ah, great. All right, guys, take that, and I want you to make 50 more. Can't be the same. What? <laughs> so we're at 100 now, so you want us to make 50, 50 more? Yes, 50 more. All right, did that. Came back, turned assignment in. He was like, oh, great, 50 more. We're at 150 now off of one verse. I was like, you tripping. <laughs> At the time, I thought I was mature. You know, I was actually pastoring too. I was like, you, Hannah, I know you got gray hair, so I'm going to listen to you. Yeah, your name rings out through these DTS halls, but you tripping. 150? But when that third time hit, it was just this moment of just clarity, tremendous clarity, and it was an assignment that changed my life forever. Because now you can't just look at English anymore. You got to go to Greek. You got to go to Hebrew. You got to go to Aramaic. And when you look at John 1, NRK, Logos, you got to say, all right, how is Logos used in the beginning, in the beginning? Where? Oh, my God, that's a call back to the beginning of the Bible. Just 150 observations. And I want to say that is how it should be for all of us to interrogate the text to investigate, to ask great questions, to observe, what do I see? And when we observe well, it will lead us to great interpretation and healthy application. That is how we study the Bible. What do I see? What does this mean? What must we do? What must I do in light of the we? Critically and devotionally. Now, while you can go deep into just one verse, it also needs to be said that we shouldn't cherry pick any verses to create significant theological ideas. God is love. Love is not God. Say that again. God is love, but love is not God. And we have absolutely butchered that verse and divorced it from the context of which John is actually talking about love. That the full character of who God is informs how he loves. And attached to that is tremendous mercy. Attached to that is tremendous care. Attached to that is a call towards obedience. That's how we learn to understand love. Not to elevate it beyond the God who defines it well. So we can't even cherry pick. So we gotta, we're going to go deep, if you will. Here's some particulars. So let's start with one. Man, I'm, again, fire hydrant, forgive me. First particular here that is just worth pausing for is the first word we see, Paul. Paul. He's going to identify himself and he's going to make a unique claim about his authority and the office that he occupies, but Paul. Now, if you've been in any Christian space, you may have heard his story, but you know what I've seen? Among us, Christians, I'm talking to Christians now, is the, the ease to which we become so familiar that things lose their weight. Had a prof, Prof Hendricks, again, he said, if we approach the Bible like, oh, I already know that story, we're in deep trouble. Paul's story is wild. 
And Paul's story is a forever statement that everybody everywhere can have what Paul calls in Galatians 1.13, a former life. This is Paul's story. He was a murderer. Not like, oh, I have anger in my heart. Like, I actually kill people. He was a terrorist. Nigerian. The kids were like, how come we haven't gone to Nigeria? You got Nigerian money? You got that, you got that bread? Where you get it from? What you doing in third grade, fifth grade? Help me understand. Right? You know what I'm saying? And, and so part of it was like, well, we don't got that Nigerian bread. But then also just conversations with my, my pops. And, you know, I was trying to go to Nigeria one time. And he was like, yeah, it's too dangerous right now. I don't want you to go right now. I said, all right. And so I was telling that to my daughter. She's like, well, why is it dangerous? I was like, well, there's a whole bunch of stuff happening. It's, it's all across the world. It's even here in America. But there is this organization called Boko Haram. It's a terrorist organization. They're kidnapping people. Plus, there's other stuff going on in some of the villages, et cetera, et cetera. She goes and she starts Googling it. I was like, first of all, I thought I put restrictions on your computer. Now I got to take that laptop back, and now we got to figure some stuff out. That was, that's literally what came to my mind first. Second of all, but then she comes back, and then she starts talking about, like, Oh, dad, <laughs> Boko Haram is terrible. It's like, yes, it is. <laughs> Sherlock, yeah. And she starts talking about all of the crazy stuff that they do. And I'm like, this is why I put restrictions on you. <laughs> First place. He's like, they're terrorists. Yes. They destroy lives. They destroy countries. They destroy terrorists. That's Paul. His goal in life was to end Christianity. Not theoretically, I'm going to get on a blog, I'm going to get on Twitter, I'm just going to say all that. Like, I'm going to take you and kill you. Acts says that while Stephen was preaching the gospel, just talking about the greatness of God, his story from cover to cover, that he is being stoned and Paul is there like, yeah, throw another one. And he had letters in his hand from the high priest to go to other Christian communities, other faith communities, and end their life. He's not playing games. Yet, this terroristic man who had good intentions, which, by the way, leads to several implications on how good intentions aren't enough, ever. But this man had good intentions, yet he was killing people, and God said, oh, yeah. Transformation is coming, though. A former life. His statement to us, just by looking at Paul, just by looking at Paul, is this. It's never too late. And we're never too far. As long as we're breathing. We're breathing. We are not outside of the reach of the love and grace of God. We could have a former life. An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Apostle is a word that Christian or non-Christian you're familiar with. We're familiar with it because it's painted everywhere. Apostolic, just go on Northeast 2nd Ave and you just see it everywhere. In uh, minority communities in particular, Latino and African-American, we, that's apostle, that's bishop. We, and so often it carries this connotation that is not rooted in the text. We see apostle here, and we're meant to see this unique authority, this unique capacity, this unique empowerment to accomplish a particular task. And there's only 13 people in the entire human history who could claim that 
office of apostle. Paul in 1 Corinthians, now Paul is going to talk about this all the time, but in 1 Corinthians, as he's juxtaposing these quote-unquote super apostles, people stepping into an authority that they do not have, and these real apostles, he is going to identify one of the markers of a legitimate apostle. And he's not going to, he's going to say, am I, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus personally, that one of the marks of an apostle is that you had to see the risen Christ personally and be commissioned by him personally to be sent out to go do this unique work. And only 13 people in all of human history could claim that. Listen to me. I love pastoring. I planted a church. We all did with a group of people. We came here and we did this. I love it love starting new stuff. I love writing sermons. And I believe that as I study and as I pray and as I wrestle in a context of community, that it is God's words first to me, but then to us. But you can take it and leave it. I'm, I'm, I'm full. You do it all the time. I say, hey, man, we should to stop sinning. Nah, yeah, what you said, but we're going to keep doing what we want. Like, I, you can take it or leave it. I write sermons, Paul wrote scriptures, there is a difference. There's a significant difference, guys. And often what I've seen, not all, not with all, but with, with many, for some of us who step into that space and adopt this title of apostle, it's usually rooted in insecurity or arrogance. And so the insecurity of, like, I need to, like, claim something more, greater than the role I have so that you would listen to me or the arrogance of even assuming that we could step into this unique space where we could speak with that type of authority. It's that Ron Burgundy vibes. I'm a big deal. Uh, yeah, leather-bound books. Apartment smells like mahogany, rich mahogany. Like, it's, it's ridiculous. That made no sense. But both of those shape what I often see the usage of apostle. But even here, when Paul is using it, yes, it is unique authority. Everything I'm getting ready to say is as if God is saying it himself. Listen. But it's tremendous humility. Man, I was a terrorist. I killed Christians. I'm the least of these apostles. Which, by the way, is the standard of Christian leadership. Godly authority is always bursting with biblical and godly humility. And if you divorce the humility, you get a tyrant. There's more here. I'm, I, see, I said I wasn't going to spend more time there, and I did it again. All right. There's more here. Another particular to pause for. Timothy, our brother. Gosh, so much here. So, like, when we think of Timothy, like, if you, again, I feel, I feel like I'm picking on Christians. <laughs> I kind of am. Um, like, if you traffic in Christian spaces, whenever we see Paul and Timothy together, immediately there's this like idea, oh yeah, that's discipleship. That's that real discipleship. That's that Jesus discipleship. That's that one-on-one -on -one discipleship. And it's like, that's not the point of that. In fact, you search the scriptures and you're not going to see Jesus one-on-one -on -one with anybody. Anybody. And you're like, well, we'll just go one-on-three. But what about one-on-twelve? What about Jesus in the 50? We're going to get to discipleship in two weeks. But 
what we're meant to see here is, yes, discipleship, but this reality that, yo, the story of the scriptures is relationships. It's all throughout the scriptures. People in relationship, relationship with God, relationship well with themselves, relationship with the world around them, and relationship with others. And there's some fascinating dynamics regarding this relationship with Paul and Timothy that have discipleship implications. There are two questions that we should regularly be asking ourselves. The first question is, who is helping you intentionally grow and transform the world around you? Fair question. Who is helping you intentionally grow to transform the world around you? And who are you helping to intentionally grow to transform the world? Like those, we need to ask those questions. But there's more to this relationship here. You could take Timothy's story. If we import cultural language that we have now into the scriptures, then we would see Timothy as biracial. His mom was a Jew and his dad was a Greek. And because his mom was a Jew and his dad was a Greek, he was seen as second class and even beneath it in the Jewish community. A mumzer, if you will. That's the term that they had. So he wasn't allowed to be circumcised. Now, the implications of those are huge because when we see Paul on the scene and there's this circumcision issue, Paul is going to get Timothy circumcised. Not because he needs it so they can believe in Jesus, but he's trying to make a statement, Timothy, you have never been an outsider to this community, regardless of what everybody else says. I'm not an outcast because your father you're part of this faith. It's a big deal. It's massive. Plus, the way that Paul speaks of Timothy. Paul was always around people because the story of the scriptures is relationships. So it's Paul with John Mark. It's Paul with Silas. It's Paul with Luke, who wrote the book of Acts. It's Paul with Demas. It's Paul with Titus. But the way he speaks about Timothy, given Timothy's story, he says, Timothy, my true child in the faith, the affirmation of a man to another man can never be underestimated. To just say, Timothy, I know what it was like, father out of the picture, but just so you know, God stepped in and I'm here for you. Oh, Timothy, our brother, you're in the family unique father, and I'm stepping into this space to care for you. And his story continues where you have this timid young leader. And Paul says, yeah, I know you're timid, but don't let anyone look down on you because you were young, but set an example. And I want you to lead the second largest church in the entire known world. Go to Ephesus. This is powerful relationships of care and concern and authenticity and speaking into and pouring into. That is the story of the scriptures. Not individual people doing their own thing, but a collective growing together. That keeps going because of the next particular worth pausing for to the saints. To the saints. That's such a preposterous and powerful statement to the saints. Hagios, set apart, distinct, holy to the saints. That the nomenclature, the identity that Paul is using for people who believe in Jesus is saint. 
not reserved for the holy of the holies, Mary and others, anybody who believes in Christ to the saints. And that matters because some of us don't feel saintly. We're like, <laughs> to the saints. No, that is Mary. Like Mother Teresa, maybe even my pastor, not that pastor, but that pastor. Like, that's not me. Because we're aware of our sin. We're aware of the ways that we fail. Something that's been on my heart for the last few months that I just feel like we need to say because of the saints is we cannot crush ourselves with the weight of our sin and brokenness. We can't do that. We can't be consumed by it. It is far too easy to condemn ourselves, but one of the most powerful statements in the scripture is to the saints. Coupled with Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for anybody that's in Christ Jesus. Do not allow the beauty of who God has called you and me to be as Christians, to be consumed with, crushed by the weight of self condemnation to the saints that's who you are regardless of how you feel regardless of what happened this morning to the saints it's a beautiful identity bursting with design there's more to that though because it's to the saints what he's showing us is that his intended audience is christian he is writing this letter to christians now that matters significantly because what we're going to see through Colossians is there's a lot of repetition of stuff they already know. The letter is reinforcing rather than just redefining. In fact, his end game is maturity. This is the end of Colossians chapter one. He says, we're doing all of this so that we could present each other mature, that we could have growth and progress in the faith, that we would grow in our love for God and our love for one another. Maturity. And his primary means to maturity isn't discovery of what's new. It's going deeper into what's known. In fact, that's often the case. We are matured as we go deeper into, quote, unquote, what's new, what's known, as opposed to the discovery of what's new. We can't get beyond the scriptures, guys. It's easy. But if we move beyond them, we move past maturity. More particulars here. Oof. And faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, easy to overlook, worth pausing for. Delphos, brothers and sisters, family. Again, the church isn't like a family. It is a family. However, faithful brothers and sisters in Colossae, what he is doing is he is cluing us into the locality of the church, the unique existence and place of a local church. This is not just Christians in Colossae kicking it. This is not just Christians in Colossae showing up at one another's houses and saying, yeah, this is a church. There is this unique authority present Epaphras, there is this unique commitment to one another. You strive to present each other. 
It's a local church. And we know that to be true, that this is being identified here because there's some unique issues that Colossae is experiencing that other churches aren't. There's this heresy that is challenging them. It's assaulting them. That's going to come out in chapter 2 and chapter 3. And at the end of this book, he's going to say, yo, by the way, pass this letter to the church at Laodicea. And when they get that letter, tell the church at Laodicea to pass the letter I wrote to them to you. The church at Laodicea is often coupled with the church at Colossae, and it's coupled with another church, the church at Hierapolis. Forgive me for nerding out, but it matters. There's only about five to seven miles that separate them, yet there's distinction among them. The local church matters. And when we move beyond the locality of the church, we enter into dangerous waters. And we actually move away from Christ himself. Back to Paul's story. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When Jesus is in heaven, Paul is killing Christians. The body of Christ matters. And I know, again, I'm just, this is, feels like a dead horse. I know for some of us, the church seems like extracurricular. God looks at it and says, no, that's core to this thing. The church is core to Christianity. The local church matters. Saints who will forever bear the marks of tremendous brokenness and tremendous beauty. Last particular. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. <laughs> So have you ever sneezed before? Who wants to say no and lie? Who wants to? Yes, we've all sneezed, yes? And usually after we sneeze or somebody else sneezed, what do we say to them? God bless you. You can say that if you're on, bless you, right? Or consentite, I don't know if that's how you say it in German. I don't know German like that. Or salut. What, do you, how, what is it in Creole? In Creole? In Jesus' name. I feel like that's a lie. John, John, I feel like that was a lie. But amen, God bless you. Right? And so like often, <laughs> and so often, like, you know, when you hear, like, grace and peace or any of that, you're like, oh, yeah, that's, like, that's kind of like God bless you. It's just stuff that you just kind of throw on the end of stuff. There's no real significance there. As if Paul uses throwaway language. Man, grace and peace to you is both a significant declaration and a sincere desire. Grace, this unmerited favor and, like, indescribable divine empowerment by God to accomplish greatness, grace, peace, rest, wholeness, joy. And he's saying all of those things have one source, the Father, who gives it through the Son and his sacrifice, grace and peace to you because God is not a liar. And God looks at you with love. Significant declaration, but it's a sincere desire. There's more grace to get. There's more peace to have. We don't have to settle for this moment. God, give me more grace, more favor, more power. God, give me more peace. I want to live from that space. I want to live from a place of rest and enjoyment and wholeness. I want to keep pursuing it. There's more grace to get and to give, period. And that's how he ends this salutation. Now let's talk. And then he goes into tremendous ideas. Back to the point 
Scriptures will only come alive to us if we engage with them well. What are you saying? What am I seeing? What are you doing? To move beyond moments where it just feels stale and blah, but to just say, God, speak devotionally and critically. This is Hebrews 4. The word of God is living and active. If there is a deficiency in how I'm engaging with the word of God, it's not in the word of God. It's in me. Whether it's my perspective, whether it's my heart, but God's word is powerful and given to us for us. It's grace. Two considerations in light of that in closing. The first is beware of boredom. Beware of boredom. My life in ministry, been at it for a minute now. Starting to get the gray hairs to prove it, right? I have seen casualties of boredom everywhere. What boredom does is boredom creates this illusion that I need something extra to make life worth living. That's across the board, it's not just spiritually. And then it creates this box and this hamster wheel pursuit where it's next high to next high to next high. Boredom is not our friend. And when you attach that idea to, to Christianity, it is very easy to get bored with God because the scriptures are super repetitive. And so we do approach him like, I already know this. I already know what God's going to say. And the problem with that is we approach God and the scriptures as subject matter, not relationships. And the only way boredom rules a relationship is when love is absent. When love is present in a relationship, you discover you ask questions, you pursue, you try to mature, you try to pursue intimacy. And so boredom is a window to what's going on into our hearts. So we, we, we should be aware of it and not give ourselves over to it, looking for high, high, high. In fact, how do you say this and then we'll move on. For Christians, it is very easy to adopt a highlight mentality with Christianity. And so you just live from one moment of significance to another moment of significance to another moment of significance. And it's dangerous because you're actually chasing something that is not true. When we look at the Gospels, Jesus's life, some three and a half years, in three and a half years of Jesus's life, we only have about 30 events and some 30 days. It's a highlight reel. We don't have the other 365 that year. That makes sense? There's a lot that was happening that we don't know. We have insight into it. He's hanging with people. He's living ordinary life. And it's beautiful. There is beauty to ordinary life lived with intentionality. Boredom robs us of that joy. And it causes many of us to eventually leave God and Christ. Boredom is a precursor to betrayal. Beware of boredom. Last is more of a do, not just to be cautious of to go do. 
be a Berean. So that's a concept that's rooted in Acts 17. Acts 17, as Paul is starting to share the gospel with his crew again, there's some people who are receiving it with gladness and some people who aren't, they rejected it because that always happens. Now, some people who are receiving it with gladness, what it said about them is so fascinating. It says that they received the word, but then they went to search to see if what Paul was saying was true. In other words, they're like, oh, man, that, that's speaking to me. But I want to make sure God's not lying. So I'm going to go double check you. That's a big deal. It sounds bad, but it's actually good. And there's so many implications to that. To say, to have a mindset that says, I am going to investigate the word of God for myself is what it means to be a Christian. Now, COVID has fundamentally changed the way that we consume content. There are people, North Dakota, Minnesota, dialing in right now. I know it because they reach out to me, several other people, and, and I, yo, keep, praise God. Have you seen Black Panther? Who hasn't seen that movie so we could shame you? All right, praise God, um, in Jesus' name. Was it you've seen it or you haven't seen it because the shame has come, right? And so there's, there's that one scene with Killmonger, and T'Challa. And Killmonger's like, yo, like, we, you know, they're all our brothers and sisters across the world. They look like us. They're struggling. We could get these vibranium and help them out. And, he's, and this is what T'Challa says. T'Challa says, I am not the king of all people. I am the king of Wakanda. And I was like, well, I said it in a better accent because I'm actually Nigerian. Rest in peace to Chadwick. But like, you know, and, and I get that. I'm like, yes. If you're tuning in from another place, I am not your pastor. Does that make sense? The locality of the church matters. And we, what we have like, fast-tracked is that in our moment in time, we have created this hyper-consumeristic way that we're engaging with the word of God and Christianity, and it is dangerous. The fallout will be felt five years from now. Where it's like Derwin Gray, who's a beast? Michael, T and I'm like, you get, they're not your pastor, unless you're there. Go find them, amen. But... None of us can survive on that. Sunday morning preaching is a terrible substitute for personal devotion. And what COVID has increased and fast-tracked is the ease for us to live with that substitute. Be a Berean. Go beyond me. And by being a Berean, it allows us to identify bad teaching and unhealthy churches. Listen to me. I'm an adventurer, except for with water and heights. I'm, I'm full with that. That's not my thing. You know what I mean? But I love food. My adventure shows up in food, like being a foodie. Had haggis for the first time and last. And so it, it, it looked terrible and it tasted terrible. But there's some foods that look bad and you're like, oh, this tastes good. And there's some foods that like, you know, look good and taste terrible. Bad teaching is like haggis, and it's like the foods that look good, but they're actually terrible. They don't nourish your soul. Your soul is starving. But when you're a Berean, when you're digging in the word of God for yourself, you're able to say, wait a second, this isn't nourishing me. Yes, God loves me, but what does that mean? Yes, I'm called to change the world, but how do we do it? Yes, I have victory, but what does it look like? God wants to deliver me. 
awesome from what? And we could go down the list, and I'm not trying to indict nobody. I'm not trying to throw any type of shade because we eat all types of churches, but bad teaching ruins lives. The word of God is powerful and dangerous. And when you put it in the hands of people who don't know how to use it, it destroys lives. I have watched people be crushed under the weight of bad teaching, believing they could lose their salvation. So every single day, they're praying, God, forgive me for this sin. God, forgive me for this sin. Because if I miss a sin, I'm done for. That's bad teaching. I've been with people who see the church as irrelevant because they get it from the pulpit. That's bad teaching. Who look at their lives as if God doesn't have a plan. God has tremendous plans for you. Not to be a carbon copy of me or anybody else. I'm a nobody. Yo, we are not professionals. I love preaching. I love this. God has called me to it, but I am a member. I don't sit in some weird space as a king. We are part of this together, and God doesn't want you to be a carbon copy of anybody. I've seen bad teaching that is destroying lives. And you counteract it, not by merely saying, yo, you need to just come listen to Luke. That's not the way that works. It's by modeling something beautiful, being a Berean. So that you can have those conversations with people. The goal is not get people to moochie. It's not even get people to Sunday, although this room being filled in the future is the goal. Amen. But it ain't that. The goal is life transformation that is multiplying and contagious because the word of God is coming alive for us. And it's coming alive for us because we've moved beyond cursory interaction. That was extra. But please be a Berean. As we work through Colossians, would we grow? (laughs) Would there be a magnet from our heart to God's because we're staring at condensed greatness? And would it change everything, one life at a time? To that end, let's pray. Father, we need you. We're not going <laughs> to accomplish that by me. Your word does work. So God, I just pray that we would just be floored by the greatness of this book as we continue to work through it. In your name, Jesus, amen.